0: Good morning, it is so great to be with you this morning and uh, thank you to Mike for reading all of those verses from Daniel, but it is such an incredible passage because we really see a story playing out. And as we are continuing our walk through the book of Daniel, uh, there's so much to unpack in this passage that we're just going to jump right on in. So if you have a Bible in front of you, your Bible app, I encourage you to open up or, or flip to it or whatever it is, open your apps. And go to Daniel chapter 4, because this is where we're going to be camping out uh, for the next uh, little bit of time. Now chapter 4 is another incredible story about God's movement in the lives of people. And it's a lot like some of the Psalms. So you may see a similar theme playing out here that's captured in the Psalms and captured throughout all the scripture. And here we see God dealing with an individual's deep spiritual needs specifically in this text we see God dealing with the deep spiritual needs of king nebuchadnezzar this babylonian king who is the most powerful man on the planet at this point in time And if you look throughout history king nebuchadnezzar is one of the most powerful men in all of history i mean the king the babylonian kingdom the power and the reach was so vast i mean think about what this guy's been able to do at this point He's been able to tell an entire people who to worship and make the law that if you don't worship what he declares, then he'll sentence you to death. And it wasn't just an empty threat or an empty promise. It was one that he was able to fulfill. And not only that, he also had the resources, unlike anything that we would probably ever be able to grasp. I mean, he was able to build a 90-foot gold statue of himself I mean, when we look at, like, house renovation shows on HGTV and look at the price of, like, just redoing your flooring with some other material, think about what it would cost and what it would require to do a 90-foot gold statue. Power, riches, notoriety, everything, land. He had it all. He was the king of kings by worldly standards, right? Right? He had no limits to his power, seemingly, and seemingly no limits to his reach and his influence. Yet we see as we study this this passage that there was still something lacking. That a man who seemingly had everything in the world was still empty. There was still something missing. Bringing us back up to speed kind of on what's happened the last couple weeks and the last couple chapters of Daniel. So chapter 2 The king has a vision. It disturbs him. It strikes fear into his heart. The man who would have no reason to fear is scared. He goes to everybody to try to interpret this dream, his his magistrates and his magicians and his astrologers. No one can do it. And so they're scared for their lives. And so they go to Daniel like, hey, can you figure this out? Daniel's a little nervous about it, but he goes before the king and he's able to tell and interpret this dream that nobody can do. And at the end of that, The king promotes Daniel. He gives thanks to God and even makes sacrifices to Daniel for what took place and declares to all the people that the God of Daniel is the God of all gods. Then we move into chapter 3, but still we see something's missing. Because he goes on, he builds this idol to himself. He requires the people to worship him. Then we get Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they refuse to bow down and worship him. And so they're, they're brought to the king, and he tells, he's like, you're going to worship me, or you're going go to go be put to death, just like I've said, and they refuse to do so. So he takes them, and he heats up, heats up a burning, fiery furnace, and it's so hot that the guards can't even get them into the furnace, yet still we see that they make it in and stay alive, that the Lord himself protects Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The second of these major, major examples that Nebuchadnezzar himself witnesses of God's power at work. And at the end of chapter 3, he says this, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command. He continues, Therefore I make a decree. Any people, nation, language that speaks against, anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. He makes this huge declaration of that people are now required to worship the God of Israel because he has witnessed God's hand at work. And that brings us now to chapter 4, where Nebuchadnezzar now is telling this story from his own personal perspective, Right? It's now become first person for him. This is a personal testimony that he's going to share with us. And he begins, if we look down, uh, and uh, as he kind of gets through this introduction, and the first thing he says is that he is a king who is at rest and flourishing. Life is good for King Nebuchadnezzar. He's a confident king. He's got an all. He is so good. Think about this. A king who is sitting down and at rest. How confident are you in your own kingdom to be in that position, right? It's almost like the work is finished. I can sit on my throne. I don't even need to stand for anything. And that leads us to where we're going to start to unpack through as we go through this passage. We're going to look at four kind of reflective observations, four reflective points that help guide us in seeing the way the Lord works in the life of Nebuchadnezzar. And the first one we see is this, that observation doesn't signify full transformation. That just because we see something, just because we witness it, doesn't mean that it's going to change who we are, how we act, and what we do. You know, just looking at the life of Nebuchadnezzar, that even though he has seen God at work in these instances, there's still something off, right? He's building a kingdom for himself. He has even declared that God is the God of all gods and builds a statue and tells people to worship him. God delivers these men from the burning, fiery furnace, and yet he is still, as we continue to read through the passage, all about building his own kingdom. Look at what I have made with my own hands. There's still something missing. As time goes on through each of these, what's interesting, these three chapters are something that takes place. We see Nebuchadnezzar's far from God. He doesn't realize what he's doing. He encounters the power of God at work. Boom, we think something will happen, and then the start of the next chapter, some time passes, and what? It's almost like he has never seen it happen before. The further away, the further removed from from that event and that circumstance, it almost seems like the further away from God, Nebuchadnezzar goes. He drifts. Memories are powerful. They can impact us. They They can even kind of adjust us for a moment in time. But what we see is that if we're not deeply rooted to what has happened there, if something inside of our heart does not change, those memories fade the impact that it has on us fades away because observation in and of itself does not signify or mean full transformation of our hearts and who we are. And isn't that like us every single week? If we live for Sunday morning right here, and this is the end all, be all. We come here, we praise the Lord, we proclaim with our lips that he is God. And by the time Saturday rolls around, Sunday's worship of the Lord is a distant memory. That, what we see as our life and what we proclaim, the further we go down the week, unless we are rooted and grounded in the Word of God, unless we are connecting ourselves and abiding in Him in prayer, it becomes a distant memory, impacting us less and less and less. That just because Nebuchadnezzar saw God at work did not mean that his life was changed, even though he could recognize it. We need something deeper. But what we see in this is that transformation is a process. Transformation is something that takes time. For Nebuchadnezzar, what he he witnessed impacted him, right? I mean, it shook his world. He changed laws. He spared people's lives. He did all sorts of stuff to proclaim that God is God, but still there was something that hadn't fully taken root. And the work of the Holy Spirit in his life, the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, is a process. It's not something that is a switch that we turn on and all of a sudden life is good and all these years and years and years of disobedience, of turning our back from the Lord, all of a sudden change, but the Lord begins a good work in us. It takes time. Paul writes in Philippians 1.6, and I'm sure this, he's encouraging the the church, that he who began, began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ, Jesus Christ. Until Jesus returns, we will never be done. The work of God will never be complete. So for us to think and expect that, oh, we've seen God and everything's going to be good is not the reality of what it means to follow Jesus, that he begins a good work in us. Now, there's a couple dynamics in here. It means that also that we don't sit here and break ourselves down and give no grace. We've got to give ourselves some grace in this process, but simultaneously, it does not give us a license to do whatever we want to when we want to do it. We cannot remain in our sinful ways. We cannot remain in denial of who God is. Because the work that he actually does, this transformation, this sanctification, being made holy, becoming like Jesus, is the start of a process of God working in us. And if God is working in us, it means that every moment he does, we are not the same as we were before. So our life should not look the same. It may not be completed, but it will not look the same. Because we are becoming more and more like Jesus. And this leads us to our third reflection point in this, that transformation is a process that calls us to repentance, that the process of becoming like Jesus, we, in that process we are called to repent. Now, what does that actually mean? It's a pretty churchy word, so let's break this down a little bit, and the good thing is in verse 27, so if you still got your Bible open and been kind of tracking along a little bit, let's go to verse 27, huge verse here. Daniel has counseled the king, he's interpreted the dream, and you see he's a little nervous about it. (laughs) He doesn't want to tell the king this hard truth that God has revealed. And yet at the end of this he says, Now let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness, and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a a lengthening of your prosperity. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness. If you're a highlighter, man, highlight the dog out of this part of the verse. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness. Now, while it is the work of God, we are called to still move in this. We're not passive in this process of sanctification. We are active in this. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed. The Lord calls Nebuchadnezzar and tells him that in order to avoid destruction, in order to avoid losing everything, you need to take your face and move it off yourself and turn it to the Lord. Stop looking at yourself in the mirror and thinking you look good and look to Jesus Christ and see what is going to take place on that cross. And it is a little bit messy, but it is all for the glory of God. He calls him to break off his sins, to turn his face. And he tells him, if you want life, Nebuchadnezzar, if you want life, if you want to know what it's really like to be alive and full, turn away from what you're doing and turn towards me. Turn around. But Nebuchadnezzar doesn't. He doesn't do that. Right? He says, my kingdom, look at what I did. Look at how great I am. And he loses it all. Everything. Because it was God who gave it to him to begin with. Even though Nebuchadnezzar didn't know him, it was still God's gift to him. And this physical loss, I think sometimes we can get caught up in in that, which is part of the story, yes, but his physical loss also signifies the spiritual death that needed to occur in order for Nebuchadnezzar to experience life. In verse 34, he continues... He then says this, I lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the most high and praised and honor him who lives forever. He finally returns to the Lord. And that's exactly what repentance does. It turns us away from one thing and to another. It recalls us to turn away from seeking our own prosperity and our, our earthly lives, the kingdoms that we're trying to build and focus on Jesus Christ. This is the transforming work of God in our every single day, every moment life. I mean, think about it. So little illustration sake. So here is the Lord over here. And here is my life that I'm trying to build in my kingdom over here. If I'm looking in this direction, every single thing in my life, every moment, every decision, everything I make is one step, right? So every step we take, if I'm taking towards building my own life, is this way, which means every single step is actually away from the Lord. Now repentance and the the turning around of our hearts and our eyes to Jesus means that we turn this way and we now have our back to who we once were and are facing Jesus. Here's the important thing to remember too. I'm still in the same place, right? I'm not at the finish line. My orientation has changed. And so now every single step that I take is now a step towards Jesus. It's a step in a direction. Everything we do in our life is a reflection of our heart's orientation. And it's by God's power and the work of the Holy Spirit alone that we can even move from this to this. That we can go from self to Christ. So how do we know then what to repent of? Some of these things are pretty easy to be you know, honest, Like, if we're sitting there thinking about murdering somebody, that's pretty easy to say, like, I, should, I should repent of that. If I'm lying, cheating, or stealing, pretty easy to be like, I should probably not steal that money. I should probably not break into that person's house. But there's other things that are a little deeper rooted that are a little harder for us to see. What brings you joy and excitement? What stresses you out? What is it that you wake up thinking about every single morning hoping for, wishing for? How easily angered are you, and what do you do with that anger? Are you caught in a lie? Or are you caught in a situation that it's almost like the garden of eating where you got to cover up yourself by continuing down that path and lying even more? Take a look at your budget. What's the first thing you need to place in that line on, that very first thing? Because that will tell us the exact thing that our heart is thinking for when we budget and spend our money. Look at our calendar, same exact thing. What is the first thing we put in there? Do we even calendar time for God? Are we, inten- are we that intentional? Or is our, the time with the Lord the first thing that gets pushed off if we've had an easy day, uh, a rough day? I know that I can get to the end of a day sometimes and I realize I have not actually spoken to the Lord and here I am falling asleep, giving him this half-baked prayer. Everything, everything is a reflection of our heart. And here's one last one. What is the fill in the blank for? If only blank would happen, then life would be full. If only blank would happen, then I would be in a good place. If only blank would happen, I would be stable. And it's not to say that all these things are bad, but the thing is they can become gods if they become the ultimate thing. And our Lord and Savior is to be the only ultimate thing. Is everything else shaping our lives, or is the fact that our eyes are fixed on Jesus shaping everything else? And this leads us to our last reflection point. That if we take repentance seriously, if we hope and pray that our hearts line up with what we're going to proclaim, that Jesus is Lord, the results will change our lives. And that's because repentance reorients our hearts towards Jesus. We are oriented in a completely different direction. Repentance takes us from facing the things of this world and building up our own kingdoms to seeking to be a citizen of God's kingdom that we are no longer king of our own life and king of our own world, but we worship and bow down to the one true king, King Jesus. For Nebuchadnezzar, he had witnessed these things. He'd seen the hand of God at work and he still didn't get it. God had to break him down in order for him to see who he was. It's an orientation of our hearts and it's part of the process of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. J.I. Packer wrote this about repentance. Repentance is more than just sorrow for the past. Repentance is a change of mind and heart, a new life of denying self and serving the Savior as king in self's place. That's what happens when Nebuchadnezzar repents. He experiences this change of heart and mind. This is what happens when we change, have a change of heart and mind. This is the work of repentance, that we no longer proclaim self as king but King Jesus A king who, instead of building up riches and accumulating power, stepped down from heaven and came to earth. A king who, instead of self-preserving and trying to do everything to save his own life, came to earth and gave his own life as this one true sacrifice for all sin. That's the king we worship. That's an upside-down kingdom from what the world tells us. Completely different. And it's because of King Jesus, because we worship that King, that we can be here today. If you're here today, no matter where we are, no matter what we're going through, no matter where we stand in this process, it's because God's been doing a work in your life. And he's continuing to. You're here today because Jesus loves you. You're here today because Jesus gave his life for you. You're here today because the Holy Spirit is at work changing your orientation. Praise God. And praise God that it is a process, right? Because if I were to sit here and be like, if I thought that I was a finished product, oh my gosh, that'd be the worst thing in the world. I mean, how discouraging would it be if we were done today? Isn't it good news that God is still at work? Isn't it good news that God is still changing our hearts and our minds? And yet it doesn't, the fact that we're still a hot mess at best, that he still died that he still looks at us and says, "I, I haven't had a second thought. No matter on our best or worst days, that we are beloved children of the one true king, the king who is sovereign and more powerful than any. That's the hope we have in life. That lasts longer than any riches, any building, any title, any reign, any impact that we will make ourselves in this world is because we worship the king who saved this whole world. Now, some people may sit there and be like, man, this repentance thing, like, kind of sounds like it could quash some of the fun of life. This may even be a chore or hard or boring I don't know if I'm ready for what's described here in Daniel, or I still want to hold on to parts of my life that I think are okay. It's not that bad, right? One author wrote this, though, about repentance. That repentance is a divine gift. And there should be a smile on our faces when we speak of it. It points us to freedom, confidence, and peace. Rather than interrupting the celebration, the gift of repentance is the cause for true celebration. It's the cost for true celebration. Look at what it did to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar didn't sit there at the end when he's praising the Lord and say, oh man, this was so tough and rough and I kind of wish that I didn't have to do this, but I'm gonna just so that life can get back to tasting good. No, because he was in the valley of the shadow of death, the things that he proclaimed about the Lord now become his experience and existential reality. Just like what David writes in Psalm 23. At the beginning, before the valley of the shadow of death, he makes these theological statements. The Lord is my shepherd. He leads me in paths of righteousness. He leads me beside still waters. And it isn't until the valley of the shadow of death that David then says, and your rod and your staff, they comfort me. It is in the dying of ourselves that we experience life in Jesus Christ. And for Nebuchadnezzar, it took losing everything for him to see that. For us, it may require a giving up of a lot of things for the goodness of God. And it may seem hard, but what we see is described throughout scripture is that that is where the joy of the Lord is found. Praise the Lord. And I pray That what the Lord is doing right now in our hearts is stirring us. And I honestly pray, and I've been praying this, and you may be like, that's kind of a weird prayer to pray for the, the people of God. I've been praying that God kind of makes us a little uncomfortable today. That we sit there and say, I am not so good, I am not so righteous, and I am not the God of my life. But I know who is. And that's where I'll turn. Because of what he's done for us because of what he's done for me. We need a heart shift, every single one of us. The more our hearts are turned towards Jesus, the answers to those questions that we kind of looked at earlier, our budget, our calendars, our joys, our failures, our successes, all of those things have a different tune. They have a different tone. And our life and existence as we wake up in the morning has a completely different purpose. And I do pray, I pray that for every single one of us here today, that the work the Lord is doing in our hearts does turn us from facing the direction of ourselves to facing and running as fast as we can towards Jesus, that we can join in the praise and prayer that Nebuchadnezzar says. I praise and extol and honor the King of heaven for all his works are right. And his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. God is good. God, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, he is king. Let's now turn to him and pray. Let's pray. Let's go to our king.